Are you interested in free theological training? Our flagship sponsor, Midwestern Seminary, offers free theological training through their For the Church Institute. This semester, they launched three new classes, New Testament 1 and New Testament 2 with Dr. Patrick Schreiner and Missional Leadership with Dr. Charles Smith. Both have been guests of the show. These classes, along with others they offer, The Story of Everything with Jared Wilson, The Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up? Hey, guys. What's up? Hey, what's up? How's it going? We uh, we just all got to hang out for a couple of days in Indianapolis. Wasn't that fun? Yeah. Hey, Kyle. What Feels the... like we got the... Go ahead. Go, Jen. No, no, no. What's no? Please, inter- please interrupt, Jen, JT. Yeah. I have a feeling you're going to do that quite a bit I, I on this episode. We've, we've traveled a few times together to a few different cities, and a couple times you uh-huh. didn't know what state the city was in. So, what state is Indianapolis in? It's in Indiana, Just which sure. uh, is not. It's not in Illinois. It's not in uh, Ohio. It's uh, in Indianapolis. Uh, you might say it's not in Iowa. I thought <laughs> Indianapolis for a long time. I thought it was in Iowa. Yeah. So and. uh Quite a few of you uh, who who found me at TGC were very kind to ask me, do you know where you are? It was one of the more popular <laughs> mm-hmm. questions uh, from uh, people who were very kind to say a lot of positive things about knowing faith. Thank you for all your kind words. But many of you were very caring <laughs> enough to just ask me, hey, Kyle, big fan of knowing faith. Do you know where you are right now? Um, so... That which which took a lot of explaining to my mother who was journeying with me for most of <laughs> the conference. She was like, "Why are people asking you if you know where you are?" And I was like, "Well, mom, because <laughs> I did not know Indianapolis was in Indiana." So, spoiler. Uh, okay, well, on this episode, we are dealing with bitter water, heavenly bread, and water from a rock. That is what we're looking at—a trio of provisional events here after Moses's song in Exodus 16 and 17. Um, we, we, we already dove into this a little bit, dealing with the bitter waters at Mara. Um, and Jen talked a little bit about the connection here with what we find in Revelation. We're going to pull her back into that conversation here in just a minute, because I think it was really helpful and maybe you missed it. But I do want us today to explore these stories as a unit, because I think they're, they are best seen as a unit of provisional events. And so I'm going to read Exodus 16, verses 1 through 12, and then uh, we're going to look at these three acts of God's provision for God's people. So starting in Exodus 16, verse 1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go, shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. Okay, so Exodus 16. Now, right before this, we encountered a story that I think is thematically connected with what's happening here as well. And so I do want to kind of just rewind and get it uh, so we can have a running head start to get to the manna story and deal with the bitter waters made sweet. Now, Jen, as we were coming out of the Song of Moses, we, we hit this really quickly, but I want to give you just a little bit of time to stretch your legs on this again. Why is this account in Exodus 15, before the account mm -hmm. uh, of the manna from heaven, this story of Israel needing water, being in the wilderness, discovering water, but oh, turns out that water is not drinkable, right? Or as mm -hmm. sometimes I see it say, uh, says on, uh, you ever see it on one of those porta potties where it says non potable <laughs> water? I, I don't know that in Mara there was a sign that said non potable water, but. Uh, that would be true for what's here. They can't drink is it. it. Why potable? is it? That's what I call it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great. That's how they say it in Indianapolis, at least. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so why is the story of the bitter water made sweet significant, both for what we're finding here, but then also the broader connection that you made last episode between this and what we find at the end of the end? Yeah. The timing of it is significant, of course, because it's the first thing that happens after they've been fully delivered from Egypt. And so, you know, as we've said before, that now that God has gotten Israel out of Egypt, it is time to get the Egypt out of Israel. Mm -hmm. And what we start to see unfold over in these first three events that we're looking at right now is that problem. It's that even though they have actually been delivered to the safest place they can possibly be, they begin to wonder if it isn't safer to have remained where they were. And so with the bitter water made sweet, we're seeing the people of Israel test God. And then we'll see God test Israel in the in the scenes that follow. But with the the bitter water, God says specifically to them when they say, you know, this water is undrinkable. Why why are we here? And what's happening? I'm back in chapter 15. He says um, in verse 20, if you will diligently listen, I'm sorry, 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes. Now remember, He hasn't given those yet. Right. 
um, says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And so right here, God is giving them, I mean, if you wanted just a, a blanket statement for the time in the wilderness and, and thereafter, it's this, listen, just, just walk in my ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to send plagues on you right. like you saw that you just saw happen. Those were, that were, those were my judgment on the ungodly. Um, and, and one of the first things that happens in the plagues is that water that is sweet is made bitter. Yep. Um, and we had the throwing, of, you know, the staff was used, the piece of wood, the staff was used to to change the water from one thing to the next. And so here we have a log, another piece of wood that is used to turn water that is uh, bitter into sweet or drinkable water. And so this is a, you're going to see this play out in various places in the scriptures, but probably most notably, um, and I've referenced this, I th- think the last time we talked about it, is in Revelation chapter 8, when we get to uh, the trumpet judgments. And in Revelation 8, 10, we hear very similar uh, language playing out. We we see that God is actually um, sending plagues. And in verse 10 of Revelation 8, it says, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And so wormwood is a bitter herb. And so we, when we, when we understand the Old Testament, mm-hmm. we understand even scary books like Revelation to be telling us, hey, this thing that happened once before uh, and the plagues that were poured out on Egypt, we're going to see God now do a similar thing on the entire created order um, at the end of the age. And so... Um, But again, what do we see as God's treatment toward his own children? It's not that he makes sweet waters bitter. It's that he makes bitter waters sweet. And he says to them, if you just walk according to my statutes, you don't need to long for slavery again. This is freedom that you're walking in. Yes. And, you know, that that is such a good point. And I think that that is... Certainly the bitter waters made sweet at Mara are a picture of that. Mm-hmm. But even verse 27 is a picture of that. Like they just mm-hmm. journey a little bit further along. And what and God's going, yep. and then what does it say? They came to Elam. Springs. There are 12 springs of water and 70 yeah. palm trees and they camped there by the water. So it's like, yes, like there at Mara, they get a picture. I, I, I do think that what this story sets up and that we see reflected in the next two stories is that Israel has come to see that Yahweh is their protector. And now in these stories, he's showing them that he is also their provider. And that's a, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a change in the flow of the Exodus narrative that I actually think mirrors a little bit of what you see in the story of Abraham. In this way, mm-hmm. I think Israel's uh, uh, being on the other side of the Red Sea, you get a little bit of symmetry uh, between Israel's story on the other side of the Red Sea and Abraham's story. God calls Abraham out of Ur. He calls Israel mm-hmm. out of Egypt. He brings them through. He has to deliver Abraham and Israel from Pharaoh, even in the face of Israel's faithlessness and Abraham's faithlessness. And then on the other side of that, he provides more than they can imagine. It's not just mm-hmm. a little pocket of water in the wilderness. It's not just one child. It's going to be more children than the stars in the sky. It's going to be it's going to be uh, multiple springs of water and seventy palm trees. There's this sense of which uh, Abraham hears the call of God, begins to experience his rescue out of his pagan past and into the future God has for him. And that coincides with both seeing this God who has called him as protector 
mm-hmm. uh, from enemies and also provider in the midst of mm-hmm. just the ordinary journey of following God's call. So I, yeah. I think this trio of stories seems to function as a unit. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you see them fitting together. I'd love to hear that. The stories, well, I mean, they're all stories of provi- yeah. they're all stories of provision, right? And they're stories of provision for material need. Uh, they're stories mm-hmm. of provision for limitedness. There's a lot of uh, mm-hmm. pictures of provision that we find in Scripture that are maybe not provisions of limitedness, so to speak, in terms of when God says, "I'm going to provide for you far, uh, you know, more children than the stars of the sky." That that's a provision of abundance, of of beyond uh, beyond necessity, so to speak. But the provision that Israel encounters here on the other side of the Red Sea is not. At least on the surface, it's not nearly as miraculous looking as the power of the plagues, but it's mm-hmm. integrally necessary. It's uh, crucially necessary for the human body. Like it's very mm-hmm. ordinary provision. It's not extraordinary frogs everywhere and locusts and a, and <laughs> and a Nile River turned to blood. It's not that, but it's deeply human provision. Yeah, you need water. You need food. I also, yeah, that's exactly right. I also see, you know, what God's doing here through these first 16 chapters in he's saving a people for himself. And whether we go back to Kyle, I love that an example kind of paralleling Abraham's journey and Israel's journey here now out of Ur and out of Egypt. Uh, he He's not just removing them from Egypt. He's also taking things away from them. Genuine language is good. He's getting the Egypt out of them a little bit. Like there's mm-hmm. things that about Egypt that, that they probably loved, whether it was... Uh, the provision that they had there. So part of what God is doing as he liberates his people is depriving them of things. He's actually taking Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. away. It's not just that he took them away to the wilderness and eventually to the kingdom. He's taking Egypt out of them. And he's also now providing, and that is spiritual formation. Uh, So much of what spiritual Mm -hmm. formation is in the Christian, like God in the wilderness here is sanctifying his people. We've talked about this several times so far uh, in in several episodes in in, uh, Exodus, is the gospel is God saving a people for himself and then forming them in his image. We could call that justification and sanctification. He has liberated and saved a people for himself, and now he's shaping and forming them. And in some sense, Kyle, yes, it, it is not super supernatural in the way that we might think of it. He's providing natural needs for them, but he's also uh, shaping their affections in it. Like he's shaping Mm -hmm. their desires to want him and to want what he provides rather than Egypt and what the Egyptians God could have provided. And again, we've talked about a lot of parallels here, but that's also then true for us in the church. We are the people who are in the dominion of darkness and as we go through the waters of baptism out of Egypt or out of the, the, the kingdom of darkness and we're brought into the kingdom of God's son, we're still in that wilderness wandering as we're, we're uh, um, as, as Paul would say, striving or working towards and, and not earning our salvation, but working it out with fear and trembling as we live in our wilderness, mm-hmm. waiting for the kingdom of God to come, we can also have confidence that God's going to yes. be our provider, that he provides bread from heaven. We'll talk about Jesus, but he also, as we gather together every single week as local churches, we're reminded of that bread, the bread that came from Bethlehem, the house of bread. That's what that that uh, word means, that God still is our provider. He's going to deprive, mm-hmm. of, uh, deprive us of the things from our previous selves, and he's going to give us the things that are good for the kingdom to sustain his people. And that's what we see here. Yes. Yes. And it is interesting because... Israel at this point on the other side of the Red Sea is now, and and this this gets 
I think these chapters are building to the giving of the Ten Commandments, which mm-hmm. will be mm-hmm. the principal foundation of Israel's communal life mm-hmm. together. Um, what you're seeing, I think, as well here is the formation of a counter-political community. You, you're seeing the building oh, sure. of a of a people that is counter to what they have experienced in Egypt. They've lived for hundreds of years into a very densely symbolic, rigorous, theologically, even though it was wrong, theologically driven political society. And now this work of God providing miraculous provision for them is actually addressing what is one of the first needs of any new community of people, whether they're a church, a a family, uh, in an agrarian society. Do you know the first question you have to answer if you're going to live? What are we going to eat? Where are we going to, what are we going to drink? And uh, Mm -hmm. how are we going to fend for ourselves? And in Exodus 16 and 17, you see God's provision of food, water, and then with their defeat of the Amalekites, his provision of military protection, basically like defeat of foreign enemies. He answers the two, three most crucial questions that any community in an agrarian society, particularly in the ancient world, had to ask. How are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? And how do we protect ourselves? Well, and not only that, but Egypt symbolizes provision, mm-hmm. right? So like it's the, it's the bread basket of the ancient world. If yes. you think back to the story of Joseph, um, when everybody else is in the midst of a famine, there is still bread to be had in Egypt. Egypt is where you go when, when starvation is happening because um, they have the Nile. And so they have living water and they have daily bread. Not only they have daily bread, but we're told that the Israelites themselves built storehouses for Pharaoh, which means they don't just have daily bread. They can store up things. And that's what we saw uh, even in the story of Joseph as well. And so Israel is receiving an entirely new paradigm for how they're going to live. They are not in this fertile area anymore. They are in an arid land where it is immediately apparent that if they are going to live, it will only be because someone miraculously sustains them, which is exactly what God intends to do. And so, you know, carrying the spiritual parallel forward, you can see that we like Israel long to have full bellies, even if it means we have empty souls. Mm-hmm. That's that's what the return to Egypt symbolizes. And anytime that we say, I think I'd actually rather be a part of the kingdom of this earth instead of the kingdom of heaven, we're saying, I will opt for security now. I will store up treasures here on earth. And instead, what does Jesus keep saying? Store up treasures in heaven. God knows what your needs are. He's going to provide them for you. And so, I mean, not to get too far ahead of the story, but, you know, when we see the ministry of Jesus begin to be in motion, the first thing after he parts the waters of baptism is that he is led into the wilderness where he has a crisis involving bread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, his example is there for the miraculous. And he says, man will not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he spiritualizes what was a very literal concern in the Old Testament so that we can understand that as those living in the spiritual wilderness in between our rebirth and the second appearing of Christ, um, that we too ask for our daily bread to be given to us in very um, tangible, tangible, in spiritual terms. Um, and that that's a request that we're going to make regularly for sustenance because what we're not meant to have is a supply that outlasts the day. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, and I want to come to that here in a second because I do think it's significant. But what you just did there, you did it fast. And I just want to make sure that we pause on it because I wanted us to get there and you brought it up. So let's go there. But this trio of uh, miracles of provision, uh, the bitter water, the manna, the water from the rock, are then, I think, uh, they're restoried, they're retold mm-hmm. in the ministry of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And particularly in the story uh, or, or the institution of the Lord's Supper, right? Where all of a sudden mm-hmm. we see them in the I am statements of Jesus. We see them in the uh, interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, where Jesus is, is, is being very clear. I am the bread of life you should ask for a drink from me because the water I will give you will be beyond what you could get elsewhere in John 4, the Samaritan woman. And then at the institution of the Lord's Supper, it it does appear that part of what's happening there is Jesus is saying, I'm not just going to, I'm not going to provide for you uh, bread and drink outside. I'm going to become the spiritual nourishment of our people. And there's a retelling through the whole ministry of Jesus, uh, recapturing of these narrative details of Israel's story on the other side of the Exodus event itself. And, you know, we're not, listen, we, I just want to be clear for the listener, Jen and JT and I are not the first people to be to be saying, the Gospels are telling the story of a new Exodus, okay? Like, <laughs> we're not breaking ground here. I just want to be clear about that. But I do think that it is very significant for us to understand that Jesus's life and ministry is a retelling of the entire story of Israel. Yeah. Like, and, and it's not accidental. Mm-hmm. It's not accidental. Mm-hmm. When we think about moving from the bitter waters made sweet to the provision of bread from heaven, is there any sense in which, uh, I mean, we've already made some of these connections already. Where do we see the miraculous provision of bread from heaven elsewhere in the story? Does it show up in other places? I can think of three other places in the Old Testament. So we know that once the manna and the um, quail are instituted for Israel, that they continue all the way until Mm. Israel enters into the promised land, uh, at which point they're told to farm and they're told to, you know, they're told to start beginning to partner in the work of provision, which is its own really cool analogy we won't have time to get into. But I thought about, uh, as we were thinking about this episode, how in um, 1 Kings 17, Elijah is fed by ravens Mm. um, from heaven. The Lord miraculously, and you know, Elijah, there are such close ties to Jesus and Elijah in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, Jesus being a true and better Elijah. So he's fed by ravens. He's sustained in the wilderness for a period of time. Um, And then I was also thinking about how in 2 Kings 4, like I, you never hear the story talked about, but Elisha feeds 100, miraculously feeds 100. He multiplies bread for 100. And so, um, you know, which is clearly pointing us toward when we get to the New Testament and Jesus is going to, first of all, be sustained in the wilderness Mm -hmm. as Elijah was, and then he's going to feed 5,000 as Elisha did. He's going to, it's going to be a magnification of what we saw in these Old Testament stories. Um, But in both cases, and I think it's significant that the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. It's the only miracle that's mentioned in all four gospels. So, um, yeah, I think that when you, and there, there are probably more that aren't coming to mind right now. We also had Joseph who was, you know, bred for the world in his, uh, in his story of, um, rising to sit at the right hand of Pharaoh. Am I missing any? Can you guys think of others? You're the ones that I had there. The other story that I think has some interesting connections here is the story of Ruth. 
Uh, oh yeah. You know, the story of Ruth is a story of a famine where <laughs> a, fam a famine, and it's interesting because Naomi herself at one point says, you shouldn't even call me Naomi anymore. What does she say she sh you should call me? Call Mara. me bitter. Yeah. You should mm -hmm. call me bitter. Yeah. And in some ways, wow. the yeah. story of Naomi and Ruth is a story of Boaz, who is certainly this figure of this prefiguring of Christ, redeeming and rescuing a woman made bitter and two women who don't have bread. And it's like a picture mm -hmm. of Israel's rescue and redemption all over again in microcosm. And then it factors into the genealogy of Jesus, which I don't think is mm -hmm. random, you know? So I do think that <laughs> that's another one where it just feels like the connections are pretty on the nose where it's like Naomi's going, call me Mara. Uh, we don't have bread. Okay. Here's this person. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think there's all these things that are happening. So anyways, I think that's another one um, where it's, it's showing up clearly. This is, this is, that was really good. This isn't nearly as good as that, but one uh, this came to my mind briefly in this story, specifically in, in the account of Exodus is just, is just as the, they're setting up the tabernacle as God's giving them instructions that there should be bread of presence. And that's just a, a yes. significant thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just bread, you know, if you eat it, it's a reminder of God's presence and his provision for his people. When, when they are that's without, right. he shows up and offers them provision, which is ultimately him, himself. I love the language here. You know, I think you guys know I've made the transition over to the CSB. So I, I, I don't know what your translation says. But I love uh, chapter 16, verse 4. Like, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. Like, he's going to make it rain. <laughs> yeah. Like, it just really makes me think of, like, this abundant provision. Like, it's kind of a joke, but it's also, like, I just love that. And again, I don't, I don't mean to take us to the New Testament too quickly to talk about Christ. But when he does say that he is the bread of life or when he's offering himself uh, at the his his body and his blood in, in uh, the communion celebration— like that, God really has rained down his presence from heaven in the person and work of Jesus. And we have all mm -hmm. of these typological, again, that means like shadows uh, in the Old Testament mm -hmm. that ultimately are meant to lead us to a deeper understanding of who, who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Mm -hmm. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your your copy today. Two other things I want to talk about in this story specifically is grumbling because it comes up a lot up. and uh, grumbling and God's provision. And then I want to talk a little bit about the interesting little thing that we get here, which is that we actually get the principle of Sabbath before we get the command of Sabbath. 
which I think is a very I have some thoughts. Yes, it's, I, I don't want us to miss that because I think I actually think there's something there that tells us something significant about from whence the law has come and why um, and how we use it, which we'll do a whole episode on next episode. But let's start with grumbling. Israel is grumbling. And that is a not just a theme in Exodus 16, like it happens elsewhere in their story. Um, but here it's like, it's being repeated over and over and over again. And I get it. I've been hangry, you know, I, <laughs> I, I understand. I think that we're getting a very human experience right here with Israel, but that hunger that they have turns to distrust and to doubt. And I, I wonder, is there a theme there is. Where else do we see this theme where God addresses um, the people's searching or grumbling in a way that goes beyond what they can imagine? Because that that happens again and again and again, right? I mean, like I even think about how, uh, well, the miraculous provision of the loaves and fishes is in an address to the fact that the disciples are like, don't we need to send these people away to get food? Right? They're hungry. Mm -hmm. There's this sense of mm -hmm. like, oh man, this is a real need that needs to be met. Is this a picture of God's grace for his people? Is this a picture of his character or his nature? Or is it just, uh, am I making too much out of something here? I think we have to stay where we are in the story when we see this particular set of grumblings, because, you know, if you follow Israel all the way through to the um, end of the Pentateuch, if you get all the way to uh, Numbers big if and Deuteronomy, yeah, then you realize that this is actually a recurring theme mm -hmm. for them. And I think it's fair to say it's one thing for Israel to grumble here, and it's another for them to grumble there. So yeah. in other words, we have a newborn baby asking, am I going to be fed? Which is what every newborn baby does, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't go, why are you so self-centered? Why are you so untrusting? You're like, oh, you're a newborn baby. You don't yeah. know. It's all up for grabs. And so God, I think it, he is more tolerant of their doubts in these first days in the wilderness than he is or really should be after they have seen his faithful provision mm -hmm for 40 years and they're getting ready to go into the land of promise where he's like, all you have to do is look over your shoulder and you'll know that I'm going to be faithful to you because I have been all along. Now, certainly you could say that's true here, but I think we can give them a little bit of room to be immature in their understanding of who God yeah. is and how he's going to interact with them at this point. So I tend to think that's why in the same way that when Moses meets him at the burning bush and totally misses the point, yeah. he deals with him in a steadfast manner. Yes. You know, but then later on, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land because he still didn't get it. You see what right. I'm saying? So I do think that here we're seeing him dealing with them where they are, which I love hearing that. I, I pray that, you know, I think that's been my experience too, Yeah, um, that he's been gentle with me when I needed that gentle leading. And then he's firm when firmness is appropriate. That's good. I, I, I do this the, I, I have a question here, and JT, I want you to give it a just a strike here. And I, I, I'm admitting I'm about to ask you a question that I think is putting you on the spot, okay? <laughs> uh, and I don't think there's an easy answer for it. I was reading an essay uh, in preparation for this podcast dealing with this passage, and the essay talks about how the man of provision is also a picture of uh, God's uh, God's restructuring of 
how he wants his people to view their economics. And it was an, it was an argument for, you know, how the mana provisions here are given. You don't take uh, more than you need right? Mm -hmm. You don't take excess. You just take what you need, uh, that there's enough there for everyone and you don't have to try to store it up or stock it up. And the, the, the writer is saying that God was prohibiting in his provision of manna here, uh, he was pro uh, prohibiting a market to develop where people could generate profit mm -hmm. off of gathering up excess. Now, listen, there's some interesting things, some comments that he makes here, but I, I do want to just ask you this question because I think this goes farther and wider than the specifics. It feels very safe. Uh, it's not. Um, <laughs> okay. I do want to ask you this question. When we're reading Old Testament passages, because we're about to get to a lot of them, we're about to deal with the law, a law that has had import in uh, the build out of much of the moral fabric of Western civilization. How much should we be looking at the 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 these kinds of passages of description like the mana provision and then thinking huh i wonder if there are precepts or principles there that should be governing driving or shaping the way that we have our moral imagination our imagination when it comes to uh what a christian view of economics is is that right or wrong to do just like if somebody's reading along or encounters that because there's a lot of it out there oh, yeah. and it's growing and I just would be curious, how can a thoughtful person go, I really do want the, the story of Scripture and the principles of Scripture to shape the way I view everything, including economics. How do they handle something that's like that, where they go, should I be reading the man of provision and going, oh, I guess that profit motivation businesses are a bad thing? Right. Um, so, Jen, what do you think? <laughs> I asked you. Yeah, so this is, this is really more a question of, of just biblical hermeneutics than it is a specific question about market-driven economies versus yes. uh, how do we know what is descriptive and how do we know what the prescription should be from something that was just described? And so one thing that we can basically all agree upon uh, if we're reading the Bible the same way is what the description is. Here's the story and here's what happened. That's the question of description that you're asking. The question of prescription, which is really what you're getting at here, is how do we derive principles from Israel was called to do this or behave like this, and therefore sh should I be, should my family be, should my business be? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, should we take these passages prescriptively? The truthful answer is maybe. Maybe. Because <laughs> some aren't meant to be. And, and some, are, yeah. some are not meant to be. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to touch all the hot topics today. Uh, one of the big conversations around right now is how should God's people relate to the state or to a nation? Uh, and that's not related, just, that's not just a question here for American Christians. That's been a question that John Calvin uh, was addressing and Luther was addressing and that Christians in South and North Korea and China today are having to address. It's a very complicated question. Uh, that is actually kind of driven from uh, our lived experience, the nation that we live in, our history, or in our imagination of what a nation state is meant to be. So whether it relates to politics, whether it relates to market-driven economies, whether it relates to um, how we're to relate to other nations uh, as the church, perhaps, it's really, really, really hard but that doesn't mean we never do it. One of the principles that we can use to, to draw what is the prescription from a specific Old Testament narrative that I'm reading the description of is to use the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Bible helps us see what is meant to be prescribed. One of the passages that's coming to mind right now about this passage in particular, Paul, Paul tells us what the prescription is supposed to be. He doesn't talk about uh, market uh, economies. He doesn't talk about um, employment. He doesn't talk about politics. He talks about the church and their grumbling. You want me to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to you? This is what the prescription yep. is supposed to be out of this passage. 
He says, now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all had the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. And here's what he says. These things took place as examples for us. Here's mm-hmm. the prescription. These things took place uh, for us as an example so that we would not desire evil things as they did. Don't become idolaters Mm -hmm. as some of them were. As it is written, they would uh, sit down to eat and drink and get up to party. I love the CSB. CSB just makes it so clear. <laughs> Let us not commit. Oh, wait, wait. Tr- Hold on. Are you running a guerrilla campaign for the CSB uh-huh. right now? I'm no, taking a little wait. bit under the under the table from them. They're really excited. <laughs> shout, shout, out, <laughs> shout out to the CSB. <laughs> yeah. so, and then it says, let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In a, uh, in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did. And they were destroyed mm-hmm. by snakes. Don't grumble as some of them did as they were killed by the destroyer. And he continues, that's the prescription. The Bible, yeah. the Bible helps us interpret the Bible. Uh, the Bible yeah. is the best interpreter of the Bible. And so when we get off into other places where we're, we're drawing prescriptive interpretations that the rest of the Bible is not giving us, uh, that's, a, that's, I would argue, more often than not, that's probably not the best interpretation of Scripture. But when the Bible interprets the Bible, we can say, actually, this passage is about God's people grumbling in the wilderness, committing idolatry, living mm-hmm. in sexual immorality. That is the prescription from this this descriptive Old Testament narrative. That's exactly what I was hoping you'd say. Yeah, I would just, the only thing I would add to that, I totally agree with that. And in fact, the reference to snakes was something I forgot to drop in earlier because the last time that we hear Israel grumble before going into the promised land is when God sends a plague of serpents on his Mm -hmm. own children to show them, hey, you need to cut this out. This has gone on too long and you know better. Mm -hmm. Um, But with regard to property ownership, it is worth noting that it is possible that the provision of daily bread and only daily bread to avoid the development of inequities among the children of God mm-hmm. at this stage is a good one because it is not until they reach Sinai that they are given laws that are specific to making sure that people don't um, leverage um, yes. a higher position of wealth against a person who has a lower position of wealth. So I could see where in this particular moment in Israel's history, it could be a provision of safety for them that they do only receive what they need in the moment. That's and right. uh, that's really good, Jen, because you because I, I want to even just kind of rethink what I said. I still agree with what I said, uh, thankfully. But I mean, if you're talking about provision and specifically bread, you think about acts. Yeah. The, the, the Bible does address this in other places and how the people of God right. interact mm-hmm. with each other. Having all things Having in all common. Having all things in common, yeah. as they break bread together, yeah. or also the church in Corinth. Uh, the wealthy were getting there early, eating eating mm-hmm. uh, the meal yeah. before the, the yeah. those who were in another position in society were able to even get to church that had communion without them. But what it doesn't do is give us a prescription of how to make sure we can right. we can limit in inequality uh, or inequities. Mm-hmm. And that what you just did there, JT, is that I think is a crucial part of the difference between a principle and a prescription. That's right. A prescription, mm-hmm. I think, often is very clear on both the substance and the method. You shall have no other gods before me. Boom. Right. Don't make any carved images. Don't worship any you know created thing. That's a that is a prescription. It's clear. It's binding. It is it, in some ways it's binary. It's black and white. 
principles, mm-hmm. though, which we can deduce from des- descriptive passages, require wisdom in their how and the application of them. There's a different contextual application to the story if there is import in terms of thinking through equity and fairness and rightness as a principle in the man in the wilderness story, its import and its application will be different in our current cultural moment than it was in the wilderness with manna. And I don't, it Mm -hmm. it should, it wouldn't be a one-to-one correspondence in the same way that you shall have, don't lie. You shall have no other gods before me. It's like, okay, those are much clearer. Mm -hmm. So I think distinguishing between a prescription and a principle often has to do with the broadness of its uh, context and its application environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to talk. Well, I do want to I don't want to leave this off there. We're going to get to the rock here in a second because we can't miss that. But there is when we're thinking about principles here, something interesting about the man of provisions are that you get the principle of Sabbath before you get the prescription of Sabbath. You get the Mm -hmm. idea of Sabbath as a crucial part of how the manna is to be collected, particularly on the sixth day, and why they're going to collect it on the sixth day in preparation for resting on the seventh day. And Jen, you said you had something you wanted to say about this. I'll I'll start with you. Well, I know we talked about this in our uh, podcast capture that we did at the Gospel Coalition. So I don't know where that's going to fall in the season. Is that going to be before this or after this? It'll It'll be long after this. Okay, well, then maybe we should just say pay attention in that episode because we talk about why we hear reference to the law before the law has been given, almost as though they already had an awareness of what that law was. So I think we should just tease it out here. But I do love that we see the Sabbath principle introduced so early into the narrative of Israel's newfound freedom because I think that um, when we, and we're going to get to the Ten Commandments, so I don't want to get too far ahead on that. But um, the idea that the God of Israel doesn't just bless the idea of rest, but that he mandates it is so completely countercultural to the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan who demanded labor without rest. And so I think it's lovely that one of the first things we see God expressing is a value for rest for his people. That's right. So moving on from here, we see the story of the water from the rock where Moses strikes the walk, rock, the walk, <laughs> not the walk, uh, not Elmer Fudd over here. Uh, he, not stir fry in the yes, wilderness. That's yes. true. Uh, but he strikes the rock uh, and, uh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. When I said strikes the rock there, all the picture that immediately popped into my head was Moses hitting Dwayne the Rock Johnson with a staff. <laughs> I, like, I cannot get that out of my head. And it doesn't help that I wish I could turn my camera and show you I have a picture of the rock right here in front of my desk, which, this hey, for the listener. Surprising. Yep. Um, I'll let, let the listener understand. Okay. G- uh, hey, <laughs> let me, uh, let's just do this. JT is the rock, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and so I mean, you're gonna, you're stuff go- and I know you're going <laughs> to say it. I know you're going to do it. So let me just go ahead and give it to you because I know you're just going to be waiting with bated breath to tell me the rock is Jesus. Well, but like, like we said, uh, the Bible interprets the Bible. And so <laughs> Paul and I agree. <laughs> oh my yeah, gosh. No one's fighting over this one. Well, no. I, so yeah. uh, where, where do we see that at? Why I'm are you so surprised by that? I thought you guys might disagree with me on this one. No, no. This one seems pretty straightforward. Where do you find yeah. it at, though? First uh, Corinthians 10, verse 4, I think. 
uh, that's the passage I just read. So yeah, it's, it's the, it's, uh, Paul using all of these stories as examples of look how, look how much God provided for you. And yet you still mm -hmm. grumbled, you still walked in idolatry and sexual immorality. So, but again, I think it's just a, a beautiful picture of God's plan from the beginning has been to save through his son and to provide through his son. And so, the, uh, you know, sometimes without getting too technical in some of this stuff, there's, there are some theologies that it, they almost make it sound like God was spitballing through the Old Testament. Like, mm -hmm. let's see yeah. if that mm -hmm. one works. Let's see if that one works. Finally, let's get to Jesus. And that wasn't God's plan. We've talked about this before, the covenant of redemption made before the history of the world, before the creation of the world. This covenant that was made between the Father, Son, and Spirit to initiate salvation from the Father, accomplish salvation through the Son, and apply it by the Spirit and grant it to us by the Spirit. And that doesn't just begin. Like, it's not God the Father, Old Testament, God the Son, Gospels, God the Holy Spirit, acts and moving mm -hmm. forward. That right. God the mm -hmm. Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are working uh, inseparably to, to liberate, save, provide, and deliver his, king, his, his people into the kingdom. And we see that even here in a story that just here, it, this passage does not say that it's the Christ. Paul helps us see that. And what a beautiful thing to know that Jesus has been caring for his people uh, forever. He has never not had a day when his affections weren't for us, when he didn't care for us, when he didn't want to be our provider. That's right. Mm -hmm. This story here is a reminder to us that uh, we've been talking about this already, that uh, all of these stories here find their fulfillment in Jesus. They find their provision there. I think of all of them. We've talked about the Right. All of them. Right. I'm not saying that I'm not saying all of them are theophanous appearances. Don't don't try to Thank put you. words in my mouth. Yeah. I'm saying they yeah. all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. Like, do you think when the Jewish audience heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life? Do you think any story came to their mind? I bet for a lot of them, I bet mm -hmm. this story came to mind for them. Mm -hmm. And I bet they thought about the provision of mm -hmm. bread in the wilderness when they thought they would die for Jesus to say, I'm the bread of life. I, I think it's more than for him to just say, yeah, I'm a good thing. That's going to nourish you. I think he is deliberately recalling a significant moment in Israel's story and saying, I'm the proper fulfillment of that. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm the mm -hmm. one who has come to be a kind of spiritual nourishment that goes far and away. Uh, the nourishment that's needed in an earthly wilderness having been rescued from an earthly tyrant, they're saying, I'm providing you a salvation that's beyond that. I'm providing you a nourishment that's beyond that. It is interesting to read Calvin on the Lord's Supper and to discover just how often Calvin is going to call into mind these stories, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like these mm -hmm. stories, um, to his view over the sacrament mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. spiritual nourishment that God provides for us in Jesus every time mm -hmm. that we come to the Lord's Supper together every week that we do that. And if you're a church that does it weekly or you do it quarterly or whenever you do the Lord's Supper, you stand at that meal, not just at the meal that Christ instituted in John 13 on the eve of his betrayal and, and death, you stand in this continuation, something we're going to see even further into this story where God invites his people to eat in his presence and place host at that table. The provision of man and the provision of water at the rock is a demonstration that the same Yahweh who freed Israel from Egypt is going to be the same one who feeds them in his presence. Mm -hmm. The story of Exodus isn't just, I'm going to free you. It's that you're mm -hmm. going to eat in my presence. It's, it's a picture of divine fellowship, not just 
divine forgiveness or divine victory. I think the gods of Egypt were distant, victorious gods, but they weren't gods who drew near to the people. But these pictures here are pictures of, of fatherly and even maternal kinds of provision and nourishment. Certainly Israel had to had to stand on the other side of this at some point and think, who is a God like Yahweh, mm-hmm. right? Well, and then, you know, when we see the true Israel in the new Jerusalem, you know, they gather for a feast, they break bread. And not only that, but when we see the vision of the throne at the close of the book, there are streams of living water mm-hmm. flowing out from the throne. And so these images are meant to propel us all the way through to the end of the story, that things that we saw in miniature or in part back here in Exodus, and maybe even a little before Exodus, we see in their fullness uh, at the end of the story that things that were true for um Uh, one people become true for every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so again, it's that expansiveness of the, of the Abrahamic covenant of the new covenant and how it reaches to the ends of the earth, uh, because of the one who is seated on the throne. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, on the next episode, we are going to talk about the giving of the 10 commandments and the law and its role in Israel's life and what that means for us as Christians. If you want to find Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, You may have heard about great resources or products earlier in the show. I want to encourage you to check out the show notes for a link to our sponsor's webpage, or you can go to the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, and products we vet and we believe in. We're really excited to be partnering with 10ofthose.com, specifically as it comes to books we recommend. And I want to point you to a couple of books that you should check out right now. One is Adam Griffin, who's one of the hosts of the Family Discipleship Podcast, is just released a new kid's book called The Boy Who Was Bold. And I've been reading it with my daughter. We have loved it. It's about the story. Uh, it's one of the only stories we have of Jesus um, as uh, a child, which is Jesus at the temple. Uh, and so I would encourage you to check out that book. You can find it over at 10 slash partner slash knowing faith. Uh, but if you're looking for something a little bit more, you know, adult, then maybe check out You Are a Theologian, uh, written by two people that are, you know, okay. <laughs> Um, but go to, go over to 10 of those.com slash partner slash knowing faith. You can find books we've recommended from every season that we've done so far. Uh, so if we've recommended a book, it is over there and you can find the boy who was bold and you are a theologian. Go check it out over there. I do also want to point out if you go to train the there is something I want to point out to you. We did a breakout at the gospel coalition on discipleship. We run a cohort once in the fall, once in the spring, the spring cohort applications are open for right now. And if you are interested in thinking about uh, giving attention to the discipleship environments at your church, we would love to help you think through that with you. If you go to trainthechurch.com, you can find a video of the breakout that we did at the Gospel Coalition. We had a lot of fun doing it. It'll also give you just a little sample of what we're doing in the cohort. And if you go to trainthechurch.com, you can also apply to be a part of that cohort that will jump off in the spring. We fully anticipate the spring cohort will fill up. And so if you are interested, we encourage you to apply. And if you can't make it in the spring, we'd love to consider you for the fall or beyond. You can check out our sister shows, Tiny Theologians, the Family Discipleship Podcast, Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson, or Confronting Christianity with Rebecca McLaughlin. They're doing great work all over at those shows. We hope you enjoy the discussion today. Grace and peace.
Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.